Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! Well, it's a very special time here in the UK where I am. We are into spring, it's the start of May, we've crowned a brand new king, but none of that matters to us because we are blasting off across the universe. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Welcome along, my name's Dan. This is the show where we explore the universe, the solar system, the galaxy, everything lurking around. We find all those science secrets that are hiding. Thank you so much for listening. This week, we'll learn all about a brand new space mission. It's the JUICE launch, where the European Space Agency launched a rocket that will head across the solar system to explore the moons of Jupiter. We'll learn more about that with Claire Medhurst, who actually watched the blast-off at Mission Control. They're going to be doing the first ever lunar Earth flyby. So it kind of goes into a slight orbit, not quite orbit, around the moon and then go past the Earth. And it kind of steals energy from the planet. So kind of our orbit and our rotation and takes that and lets it push it on to the next leg of its journey. So it's quite amazing. And staying in space, we'll take a trip to Deep Space High to learn from Professor Pulsar all about how you land a Mars rover. All right, who's using a zero-G frisbee in the lab? Put it away and clear up that mess. I don't know. I was just replicating a typical Mars landing, sir. Didn't you say most missions sent by Earth have failed due to their landings? That's absolutely true. But a lot more thought goes into a Mars landing than you flinging that thing around. And I've got your questions to answer this week. They are on sunflowers and more space with black holes. There's a lot to get through. Let's start a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. All right, let's kick things off with your science in the news. Scientists have gathered their best satellite pictures yet of the world's glaciers. Now, the Cryosat spacecraft has tracked over 200,000 glaciers on Earth and taken loads of pictures of them over the last few years. Glaciers are these huge blocks of ice, and the pictures they have taken have found that altogether they've lost 2,720 billion tonnes of ice over 10 years. Now, this is bad news. It's due to climate change. It's the same as losing 2% of their bulk in a decade, which, even though they are huge, it's a short time to lose so much of what they are. And it's very important because people rely on them for drinking water and farming, so it just reminds us how much we need to keep in mind the changing climate and what we can do to help people all around the planet. Also, I love this when I found it. You need to check it out. It's an interactive map that lets you find out what the place you look like on Earth was like when dinosaurs were around. It's called Dinosaur Pictures. Look up the map online. It's got a floating Earth, uh, and you just type in where you live and set a timeline to see what it would have looked like 120 million or even 500 million years ago. Back then, there weren't really many separate continents or islands. It was one big landmass. It's amazing. Have a look. Dinosaur pictures. It even tells you what strange creatures might have been around back then too. 
and one of the world's most important fossil collections has been found in Wales. A large number of fossils have been discovered here in the UK. They were crowdfunded by scientists who raised money to get new equipment. There were over 170 species found from more than 460 million years ago in rocks laid under the sea. Not just that long ago, actually. Some were just 50 million years old. Just 50 million years old. And they show how life has evolved over time. I love this story because it's crowdfunded, which means people like you, people like me, we have given some cash to experts that want to research what life was like back then and I love that we're still thinking about how the planet has changed. Time to spin the wheel of the A to Z of engineering then. For the last few weeks or so, we have been learning about the world of engineering, finding out how things are made, who invented them, how they are still built, how long they've been around for. We're covering all the letters of the alphabet from A for acoustics to Zs to zoos, I guess. Uh, We've got so many letters still to check in with. And each week we catch up with our engineering expert, Engers, who spins the wheel to get another letter for this week. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's Y. And Y is for yacht. Thanks, Engers. So, what is a yacht? Well, it's a type of boat designed for sailing and racing. Most yachts are around 10 to 30 metres in length, but some are much bigger. The world's largest is called Azam and is a whopping 180 metres long. Unlike ferries or container ships, they're not designed to carry hundreds of people or heavy cargo. Most are powered by sails, although others, especially larger yachts, are powered by motors. As you can imagine, engineering is key in the design and maintenance of yachts, and Engers is going to dive deep to tell us more. Over to you, Engers. People have known for thousands of years how to move a boat by catching the wind with sails. But it wasn't until the 17th century when the Dutch invented what we know now as yachts. Small, nimble crafts that could see off pirates. Did you know that many sailing superstitions from those days are still believed? Bananas are considered to be unlucky to take on board, and you must always step onto a boat with your right foot. Oh, and always look after the ship's cat. And looking after things is right at the heart of what yacht engineers do. They need to be able to maintain and repair pretty much everything on board, and often when miles out at sea. That might be mechanical things like the engine, or the electrical system which powers the lighting, heating and computer systems, and not forgetting the hydraulics. Oh, and the structure of the yacht itself. Overall, it's quite a big job. Small yachts generally only need the services of an engineer when repairs or maintenance is needed, like to clean and treat the hull or replace a damaged mast. Larger yachts, especially super and mega yachts, have much greater need for an engineer, or even a team of engineers, to ensure the safe running of the vessel. Some of the world's biggest yachts are almost like villages, with gyms, swimming pools and helipads, 
So you can imagine, a team of engineers with a variety of skills is needed to keep everything plain sailing. So if you fancy taking to the high seas and working in a team as a yacht engineer, what sort of skills would you need? As we've seen, there's a lot of different types of engineering to be done on a yacht, so you might be working as a mechanical engineer in the engine room, an electrical engineer maintaining computer systems, or perhaps you're skilled at fixing the plumbing. Well, someone has to. As well as studying engineering, what's critical to all roles is a keen eye for planning and great organisation and project management skills. You need these skills in part to plan and carry out meticulous maintenance. This is crucial because it's important to prevent problems from happening. Putting things right and making repairs can be difficult if you're miles from land and nowhere near supplies. You can't exactly get a part delivered if you're in the middle of the Atlantic. Maintenance also involves keeping careful records of what's been done and keep tabs on supplies and spare parts. So if you're all about detail and enjoy keeping things running smoothly, why not take to the sea? Oh, and you'll need to not get seasick too. Thanks, Engers, for the lowdown on yacht engineering. It certainly sounds challenging. Yachts are great fun and can be incredibly luxurious. But of course, the sea can be a very dangerous place. And then, of course, there's other challenges that aren't life-threatening. Guests on a mega-yacht might be very demanding if the gym doesn't work. Ah! And that's our take on the letter Y. It's been, um, yabba-dabba-doo. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out yarn textile, yard or yield engineering? Engineer Academy. Created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com slash engineer. More from Engers, our engineering expert, at the same time next week on the show. Right now, it's my favourite time of the podcast, where I turn into a science detective genius and I get to answer your questions. Remember, if you have anything sciencey, anything at all that you want answered on this show... You need to get in touch. There are a few ways that you can do that to send over your questions so I can do all the digging and find the answer. One of the ways is by leaving a voice note on the free Fun Kids app, just like this one. Hello, my name is Ned, and I want to know how do sunflowers follow the sun? Thank you. Ned, thank you so much for this question. How do sunflowers follow the sun? Have you noticed this? It happens over the course of the day. And they don't move their muscles. Well, they don't properly have muscles, do they? They're plants. But they manage to move. They swivel their head to follow the sun right throughout the course of the day. It's all to do with their inner biological clocks, which changes what happens inside the plants over 24 hours. And it all comes down to evolution as well. These are little traits and unique qualities that allows a species to thrive over others. Now, When the inner biological clock senses that it's morning time, it boosts a hormone chemical in the plants called auxin, which controls growth. And that's really important because it's all happening in the stems. The stems of young sunflowers grow more during the night because of this auxin. The hormone only pushes that chemical down the west side of the sunflower, which makes their head bend 
in the other direction because of leaning, because of growth. So it points east. During the day, the sun's east side grows to make up with it. So the swaying motion twists their head west. So it follows the sun. And however much these two are directly connected, it's worked out brilliantly well for the sunflowers because they get more sunlight, which allows them to grow again at those different speeds. But also they get warmer, which attract more bees, which give them more chance of pollinating, making more sunflowers, which boosts their numbers. How amazing is that? These little things that have happened over so many years in the wild, which just affects what one creature can do to try and stay alive. Here's a question that was sent over as a review for our podcast on Apple from Kaya, who is 13, over in Manchester in the UK, who wants to know, what is a black hole and how is one made? So black holes you might have seen are huge voids, really, in space. This big, empty area of nothingness. And it's hard to know too much about them because they are floating all around space because we can't really get that close because they are light years away. But we know enough to have a good idea at why they're there and what they do. Here's what scientists think happen. When a star dies, sometimes it'll collapse in on itself. It almost swallows itself whole. And stars are huge. They've got a lot of mass And mass is what makes gravity. The bigger something is, it will pull, attract other smaller things towards it. So this star dies, it sucks itself inwards, it collapses in on itself, but the mass is still there. So the gravity becomes so strong that everything is sucked into it, everything nearby, including light, which means it goes completely dark, not even light can escape. If an atom goes into it, it'll get shrunk down, squeezed by gravity into something so small it's a speck, a bit like a shoelace called a singularity. Now, the most common types of black holes are called stellar black holes. It's amazing. They can be 10 miles wide, but there's so much in them, they can be 20 times the mass of the sun. Now, mass is how much things weigh without the effect of gravity. So it's how much things weigh in space, really. Uh, scientists have recently found an ultramassive black hole in a galaxy cluster bell called 1201, which has more mass than 30 billion suns. There's all that mass there pulling things towards it. Not even light can escape. And that's why it's called a black hole. Thank you so much, Kaya. If you would love a question answered next week on this podcast, best thing you can do, get to the Fun Kids app right now or funkidslife.com. We've got a big record button on there. And let me know. Send over a voice note. Tell me who you are, what you're up to. And I would love to hear your question. So next week on the podcast, I can do some science digging. It's time for our Dangerous Dan, then, where we look at some of the most mean, cruel and amazing things all across the universe. And this week, we're travelling way back in time, millions of years ago, to learn all about a dinosaur with a huge nose. Rhino Rex lived in the late Cretaceous period, about 75 million years ago. Probably lived around North America. We found fossils in the state of Utah. It was about nine meters long. It weighed almost four tons. It had a long arched tail and was a thick beast. What was really remarkable about it, though, is what gives it its name. 
Rhino Rex comes from two words smashed together. You've got rhino, which means nose, and rex, which means king. So it is literally the nose king, called because it had a huge honker. This huge nose wasn't brutal like a horn, it was just, well, a nose like mine, yours, or your granddad's massive snores, really. It was probably used to signal to members of its herd with loud blasts and blares to know that something was happening nearby. So it probably looked quite funny. This lumbering dino, massive with a huge nose, but remember that, it was so big. 30 feet long, it weighed around 4 tonnes, so even though it's got a big nose, which is funny, I wouldn't laugh at it because it's like laughing at a huge bus that is hurtling towards you you don't want to get in its way and this huge brute with its massive nose is going straight on our dangerous Dan List, probably made a noise like a bus too Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. This week we're talking about something brand new, a plan, a mission to explore some of Jupiter's moons. We can talk all about it with Claire Medhurst from the National Space Centre who joins us. Claire, thanks for being there. Hi, thanks for having me. So this is the JUICE mission. It launched at the European Space Agency Mission Control over in Germany uh, a few weeks ago now. Uh, You were lucky enough to be there. Just tell us kind of what happens at a launch like this before we get into the project. Yeah, absolutely. So a launch with the European Space Agency. So their spaceport is actually in South America in French Guiana, where the rocket launches from. They have an Ariane 5 rocket. But I was in Germany, which is where their mission control is. Um, So they take over the mission uh, when it separates from the rocket and control the mission the whole way through after its launch. That was in Germany, in somewhere called Darmstadt, um, where they have their mission control. So you can imagine all their computers, um, always people working hard. Um, So yeah, that's the European Space Agency launch from South America, where the rocket is. I was over, you could argue, slightly less exciting, um, but just as exciting was being in mission control. Well, yeah, you're seeing the business end of things where everything happens. Now, you say that uh, over in Germany, the ESA will be kind of controlling this rocket as it's blasted off from French Guiana. But really, how much work is there to do for them? Do you know or do they kind of set a course, set a trajectory and then (laughs) let it get on its way? Yeah, so it's it's quite a complicated trajectory. It's not just going straight to Jupiter. It's actually going to take a long time to arrive at Jupiter. We'll get there about 2031. And it's doing um, some flybys, so a lunar flyby with Earth as well, uh, where it gives it kind of power to get on its way. And there's a Venus flyby, another Earth flyby, a couple more flybys till it arrives at Jupiter. So they have to monitor the spacecraft. So straight away, they have to be making sure everything's okay. They've actually got a slight problem at the minute with a radar antenna. So they're actually working on things right now, right this second, uh, to try and free that antenna so it operates correctly. So they're trying all sorts of things to, they're shaking it by doing some um, fuel injections and things like that. So there's actually a lot of work as things don't go as smoothly as they hope. Uh, And then they're gonna be monitoring, they're still getting science data on the way. Not everything's gonna be fully operational. 
they'll want to save that science until they actually reach Jupiter. But they will be monitoring it um, until the excitement does happen in about seven or eight years time. But they're still doing things constantly, making sure the spacecraft is okay on its journey to Jupiter. It's amazing, isn't it, how things, not go wrong, but how things can quite quickly uh, go a bit, get have a bit tricky and when they need to figure out what's going on with this radar when it's only really been up in the air for a couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, it was a perfect launch, apart from it being delayed by a day um, because of lightning. It was a perfect launch. Everything was operating successfully. But the true test is when it comes to, like I say, unfurling those instruments. It's the 16 meter long radar antenna. Um, so, yeah, so it's out there in space. You can't send people, astronauts, to go and fix it. It'd be so much far away. This just can't be possible. So the people on the ground working with computer programs are doing everything they can trying to shake this radar free. It's quite amazing. And you mentioned it will do flypasts to, 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 to almost power up. Is, is that what you said? How does that work? Yeah, so it's, it's a bit well, slightly complex. But yeah, they're going to be doing the first ever lunar Earth flyby. So it kind of goes into kind of a slight orbit, not quite orbit, around the moon and then go past the Earth. And it kind of steals energy from the planet. So kind of our orbit and our rotation um, and takes that and lets it push it on to the next leg of its journey so it's quite amazing almost like being slingshotted yes that's exactly right yeah perfect so this is juice which stands for jupiter's icy moons explorer and i i really love that this is a you know a complex mission uh, from the european space agency but they've given it a really catchy quite a simple title jupiter's icy moons explorer just to tell us a bit claire about what it's doing, why is it going there, what are we hoping to explore on these icy moons and then a bit beyond? Yeah, actually, it's funny that it's called Juice. We actually had, the day of the launch, we had Space Juice. There was a competition <laughs> to make to make a mocktail of Space Juice, which is really cool. Um, it tasted very nice, actually. Um, yeah, the Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer is going to be doing exactly what it says, exploring Jupiter's icy moons, also Jupiter itself. Um, so it's going to be mapping the composition of the surfaces of Ganymede and Callisto, and also looking at Io as well. Um, and looking at Jupiter. So they're kind of searching to see if there's actually any habitability on Jupiter's icy moons. Like, could there be potential for life? They're not be looking for life specifically, but do they have the things needed to support life? Now, you've spent a lot of time with space explorers when you were over at the ESA a couple of weeks ago. What's the mood like? Because you mentioned that they had this idea back in 2007, you also said it's going to take eight years before it really gets to Jupiter. Like, that's a long time. I'm not sure about you, Claire. My attention span runs to about eight minutes. So how do they keep themselves like motivated and focused on the task when there's so many other things that I guess the European Space Agency can be doing at the same time? Yeah, absolutely. I'm exactly the same as you. My attention span is not not great. Um, but yeah, it's thought of in 2007. And I was lucky enough um, from the University of Leicester. Um, so I'm based in Leicester. The Space Centre is based in Leicester. We have a lot of work with the university. Uh, professors Lee Fletcher and Emma Bunce were there um, over in Germany with me as well, watching the launch of their mission. They'd been involved since 2007. And the highlight of being in Germany for me was watching their reaction to watching the launch because they'd worked on it for so many years and I think they are they're involved in a lot of different missions but watching their faces their anticipation because they've worked for so many years on this mission to see it get delayed one day you think oh what's a day when these people have been waiting since I think it got officially confirmed I think in about 2014 to actually kind of be made and created into an actual mission um 
they've waited so long, but the, the tension. So it launched, uh, which was amazing. Everyone was applauding, but that didn't last very long. That relief of it launching and getting past the launch pad. The next thing was its separation from the rocket. And there was a very tense atmosphere in the press room as we were all waiting to see. And then we were waiting for a signal from Juice. And we finally got the signal. We finally, the solar arrays had deployed exactly how they wanted it to go. The champagne was cracked open and people were celebrating. But there was still that tension of hoping it goes well, knowing that it's going to be another about seven or eight years to get to Jupiter. There was still that tension in the room, definitely. And at the end of these projects, so when it is orbiting around a moon or when it's travelled further and they are done with it, what tends to happen? Do we just let it float off uh, across a galaxy and it becomes more space junk? Uh, yeah, sometimes. Sometimes that does happen. With JUICE uh, and with a lot of space missions, scientists build these missions so well and so expertly that they can go on for years past their, their date of when they were supposed to end. So things like the Hubble Space Telescope went on for so long. Mars missions, robots on Mars, they've lasted way longer than they thought they would. The same here's hoping for JUICE, they've built it so well and it gets to Jupiter perfectly that it can carry on and they keep extending these missions um, to learn more. But the plan is that when Ganymede is finished its mission, I think it's yeah, spending about three years um, or so in the kind of Jupiter and its icy moons, the plan was to after it's in orbit around Ganymede, to let it crash land into Ganymede's surface. Um, and when you do that, you get a lot more scientific data getting closer. But there was a question of, if it is habitable, will that affect any life forms already on Ganymede? So that yeah. is a big question that you have to think about. But they, scientists believe that that won't be a problem and they probably will crash land it into Ganymede. That's amazing, isn't it? We don't want to find the one bit of civilization in the solar system and then and then accidentally destroy it while we're researching it. That's incredible. Uh, it's been a real joy. Claire Medhurst from the National Space Centre, thank you so much for joining us. No, thanks for having me. Let's take a trip to Deep Space High to finish off this week's podcast then. Every week recently we have been getting in our rover, heading to Mars with the Deep Space High gang, learning from Professor Pulsar all about what it takes to land a craft on the Red Planet. And, well, landing on Mars is the hardest part of any mission. Most missions have ended in failure due to problems, landing, so as design challenges go, it's, it's a pretty big one. Let's find out why with Professor Pulsar in Deep Space High. Deep Space High, Destination Mars. Jump into a wormhole and travel to deep space high. The school is space, but hurry, because lessons are about to begin. Pick what? Catch! I said catch! Alright, who's using a zero-g frisbee in the lab? Put it away and clean up that mess. I don't know. I was just replicating a typical Mars landing, sir. Didn't you say most missions sent by Earth have failed due to their landings? That's absolutely true. But a lot more thought goes into a Mars landing than you flinging that thing around. Check out the screen. Space is hard, and getting to Mars is really hard. Over 50% of all Earth missions that have been sent to Mars have ended in failure. The huge obstacle in exploring Mars is actually landing on the planet. How do they even decide on a landing site? The surface area of Mars is comparable to Earth's landmass. Imagine having to choose just one spot to land on and call home. Selecting the right place could mean the difference between achieving your scientific goals and failure. 
Fortunately, planetary scientists have got stacks and stacks of data and images of the Mars surface to help them pick the best spot. They want to be somewhere with a mix of rocks and also for places where there are signs of water. Like the Mars water slide and skate park? <laughs> that doesn't exist, Quark. I mean channels and grooves in the rock that suggest where rivers might have run. So let's watch how a typical rover module makes its approach to landing. As it enters Mars's atmosphere, the module is travelling ballistically. That's around 21,000 kilometres per hour. At that speed, it's going to get seriously hot, and so it needs to hide behind a heat shield. Travelling through the atmosphere will slow it down to a degree, and once it's slowed to what we call its terminal velocity, the module will deploy a small parachute. Why not a massive one? It looks like it needs to slow down a bit faster than that. A big one will be just ripped to shreds at those speeds, but once the module has slowed down further, a larger parachute will come into play. This then slows the module down further into a more gentle freefall. The module will now lose its heat shield and fire retro rockets, which bring the module into a low hover a few metres above the surface of Mars. At this point, they have to switch off the rockets, as otherwise dust could be kicked up which could get into the equipment. The module, though, does have shock absorbers to stop it getting damaged, but as you can see, there are all sorts of things that could go wrong. Three, two, one, and... Fortunately, this probe has made a safe landing. And if we watch, we should see the rover coming out. Any minute. Oh, it looks like the petals on a flower opening. And the rover's unfolding and driving itself off the module. You can see how carefully all the parts of the rover were folded into the landing module. It's all been designed to ensure that the rover arrives in perfect condition even despite its rough ride. Still less of a rough ride than Sam's zero-G frisbee. <laughs> Deep Space High, destination Mars. Support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you have a science question that you want answered next week, make sure you leave it for me as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. While you're there, it's one of the best places that you can hear so many of our brilliant series. You've heard a few today. We've got them on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows too. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country on your DAB digital radio and at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!